1: We're focusing on the crucifixion of Jesus next on today's edition of Abounding Grace. Join us. From Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, this is Abounding Grace. Hi there, and welcome to our program. Our teacher and pastor, Pastor Gary Wagner, has been in a survey of the book of Luke. And today, as we work our way towards the end of this marvelous gospel, we find ourselves focused in on Luke 23. And starting at verse 35 through 46, we have a view of the crucifixion of Jesus. It's the crucifixion, part three. Please join us. With today's broadcast of Abounding Grace, here's Pastor Gary Wagner.
2: At this point, Christ is in darkness that he might become the light of the world. And his face is no longer dark to those who believe in him. Second Corinthians 4 six says, For God who said, let, shine, let light shine, sorry, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And verse 4 above says, Satan blinds people that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now God's face shines. The glory of God is revealed in the face of Christ to those who believe because He hung in the darkness for us. He now has light to give us that we might live in the light and fellowship with God in that light. Acts 26 tells us that when people are truly converted, God opens their eyes so they will turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in him. We are in the light. We're no longer in darkness because Jesus was in the darkness in our place. But not everyone loves that fact. In fact, in this apostate, reprobate world in which we live, this is one of the most offensive things about the gospel. I want to read to you from the philosopher Nietzsche's hero, Zarathustra. Now listen, you're going to have to listen very carefully to this. And if any of you have not read Nietzsche, please don't waste your time. (laughs) But this is a great confession, actually for all believers from Zarathustra. And he said, their many sons, S-U-N-S, are cavorting in space. Their rays have a message for all that is dark, but to me, they are silent. Oh, such is the enmity of light against everything which itself gives light. Now, you have to think about that for a few minutes. Probably about two or three hours like I did. But what a great sentence. Now, he's, he is saying, Because I believe... I'm the source of my own light and my own knowledge and wisdom in this world. I hate all objective sources of light in the world, like the sun, for instance. Because whenever I see any other objective historical sources of light, it betrays what I believe above all else, that all is dark except The light that flames from my mind and my experience. I hate the sun. It has nothing to tell me. It just reminds me that with all of my profession of being a light bearer, I stand in the dark. You, You see, beloved, that's why the unbeliever suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. And that's why Jesus says he loves the darkness and he hates the light. And so the unbeliever gets from God exactly what he wants. God says to the hardened unbeliever, you want darkness? I'll give you darkness. But for the unbeliever, we recognize that it is only in the light of Jesus, who was once in total darkness for us, that we see light. It is only in him that we understand anything at all. Again, Claus Schilder said, the language which God speaks by means of this darkness is so absolutely devastating, disarming, stripping, erosive, and consuming that the legal sentences of death by Pilate and the Sanhedrin and the mockery of Golgotha are as nothing as compared with the language of God which places this great outlaw in the dark. In other words, God's justice has sent Jesus into the darkness of hell in our place. When we say the Apostles' Creed, we confess that Christ descended into hell. And we will talk about that soon when we actually talk about Christ's burial. But He is already descending into hell. He is in the darkness of hell so that we will not descend into hell. Then another miracle takes place in verse 45. The sun being obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Now you have to understand something about the Jewish temple of the first century to understand what this tearing of the veil is all about. You know, first of all, there was a courtyard and then behind that courtyard was a temple that had two rooms. The first room was called the holy place, and in the holy place there were several pieces of significant furniture. Then the second room was called the holy of holies, and these two rooms were separated by an ornate heavy curtain. In the holy of holies, the main piece of furniture was the Ark of the Covenant, God's so-called throne the place where propitiation was made, the place where shed blood was sprinkled, signifying that Christ has turned away God's wrath and that the sacrifice has been accepted by God for sinners. Now, the only person that could go into the Holy of Holies and offer blood on the Ark of the Covenant was the high priest. And he then only entered in once a year. That thick veil kept everyone else out. And here when Jesus died in Jerusalem, in the temple, to the shock and amazement of everyone, that curtain was torn in two so that anyone could look into that room, which no one but the high priest for generations had ever been able to look into. It was open now to anyone who wanted to look in. Now, the miraculous thing about this is this veil was not torn from the bottom up, but this high and very heavy veil was torn from the top to the bottom. This is not something man did. If it had been torn from the bottom to the top, you might be able to say that someone did it to fool everyone, but it was seen being torn. Uh, This curtain was torn by God from top to the bottom so that anyone could look in and enter the Holy of Holies. Shielder said, At that point, heaven opens up. A whirlwind so overwhelming that it cannot be heard blows toward the temple and sweeps all the priests aside. A divine hand seizes on that curtain, tears it in half, and in doing so, God testifies that the work of His Son was perfect. That admittance is open to all who ask for God. In other words, Jesus died, and God says, All right, here is the result of that death. Rip! Now anyone who wants me can come to me. Anyone who wants to enjoy fellowship with me can now have it. You don't have to go through a human priest any longer. It's open for everyone. And everyone who comes to me through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is hanging on a cross, I will accept. So with the tearing of that veil between the holy place and the holy of holies and the opening up of the holy of holies for everyone to see, the whole Levitical priesthood and the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament and all of the temple rituals were swept aside forever. No more Levitical priests. No more sacrificial system. No more temple rites and rituals that pointed to Christ. Christ has accomplished eternal redemption for those who love Him. Listen to what Hebrews ten nine and following says, and the book of Hebrews makes much of this veil. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, which He inaugurated for us. So, You see first what he is alluding to. Now we can go right into the presence of God himself and enjoy fellowship with him because of that new and living way that Christ has opened through the shedding of his blood. But then comes this powerful imagery. It says, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. Hebrews is saying that it was the tearing and the breaking of His flesh that caused the veil to tear in two. And without the ripping and the tearing of His flesh on the cross, we would not be able to enter that holy place. Without the cross, beloved, there is no gospel. And now there is nothing Nothing between the sinner and God, sinner and God, except for the sinner's unwillingness to come to Him. Everyone that wants the true God can have Him. Everyone that wants his sins forgiven, so that he can live for God and enjoy fellowship with God, can have that forgiveness and that fellowship. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter what your background is, because the veil was torn by God in two from the top to the bottom when Jesus died on the cross for us. And if you're here today and you are without forgiveness of sins and you're living without fellowship with God, the only thing standing in between you and God, one thing is your unbelief and your unwillingness to come to him. Repent of that unbelief. Come to him and you will find that he is yours along with all that he has promised to all those who believe. Well, Matthew records something that took place when Jesus died that Luke doesn't record. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one says, And the earth shook and the rocks split. So there was obviously an earthquake. Schilder once again said, Brace yourself now when you think about this, for God is performing greatly. He is splitting the earth, tearing the graves asunder, putting the dead on their feet again, bursting the rocks, rending a curtain in pieces. So here Jesus died. The sun goes out. And understand, none of this is a metaphor. And the ground begins to shake. It's a miracle. The ground around the cross starts trembling. There's an earthquake right, coincidence of course, at the moment that Christ died. And what is the purpose of that earthquake? It is God saying in unmistakable terms that redemption and revelation are taking place in this event on Golgotha. He is saying in no uncertain terms that I am intervening into human history. I am revealing myself. I am showing you something of my power and my justice and my grace and my mercy. I am entering into history to save sinners through the death of this man, my son. And with that earthquake, just at that right moment, God is saying clearly for all of us to understand, this is my beloved son. Redemption is taking place here and now on Golgotha. And everyone who believes in Him as their Lord and Savior can be certain that He obtained their eternal redemption from the hell they deserve then and there. You know, the Old Testament prophesies of a great shaking that would come to the earth someday said that the only thing left standing would be The kingdom of God. Hebrews makes much of this prophecy of the shaking of the earth by God. And it's a pretty dramatic thing. It says in Hebrews 12, verse 25, down through verse 27. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, that is Christ. For if those did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on the earth in the Old Testament, much less... Shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven? So we see here that we are more obligated to obey God than even the Old Testament saints were obligated. Read that again when you go home. And his voice shook the earth then. But now he has promised, saying yet once more, once more, I will shake not only earth, but also the heavens, and his expression yet yet once more denotes the removing of those which can be shaken as a created thing, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So the author of Hebrews says that God promises a great shakedown of everything so that anything that can be shaken, that man has made in rebellion against God, will be shaken down. And the only thing, the only thing that will be left standing will be the kingdom of God and its life and its glory and its power and its citizens That is the only thing left standing after this great shaking. Now, let's go back to this prophecy which is found in Haggai, or some people say Haggai, toward the end of the Old Testament. And you're going to see this foretelling of God's shakedown that Hebrews alludes to. Haggai chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. Like all the other Old Testament prophecies, they're full of messianic prophecies, and that is what this is a messianic prophecy. Now listen, and the Lord says, I will shake all the nations. And they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill the house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of the hosts. The latter-day glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I shall give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So here you have a messi- messianic prophecy in which God says... In Christ, I'm going to shake the nations, and I will shake them so severely that the pagan ungodly nations are going to come to Christ with all of their wealth and fill the house of God with wealth and glory and honor and worship. And as this shakedown goes on, the latter days of the shakedown, the latter days of the house of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, will be far greater in the earlier or former days of its history, it will know peace. So here you have a prophecy of God saying, I'm going to bring the earth into a great shape. I'm going to shake everything. And I'm going to shake it so severely that I will cause ungodly nations to turn from their paganism to Christ and they will bring their wealth and their power into the church of God to serve it and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that great shakedown is going to continue in Christ throughout history in the latter years. The latter days of the church of God are going to be even greater days than the earlier days of the church 2,000 years ago. Can you imagine that because of what God is doing in history, now, in the Lord Jesus Christ, shaking nations into repentance... That the church of God in the future is going to be far more glorious and far more peaceful than anything that precedes it. That is the one text that we use for our post-millennial hope of the future. And now the thing to realize is that this shaking of the earth at Jesus' death means that this great shakedown has already begun. It's not something we have to wait for. Throughout history, God has shaken many people and families and even nations and tribes and peoples into submission to him who brought their glory and their wealth into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as this continues, the Lord Jesus Christ will win conquest after conquest among the nations until all of the peoples of all of the nations of the world will bring their glory and their wealth and their power and their worship in to Christ church. Amen. There is a church phrase in the Psalms that we don't even use today in the Christian church that talks about nations being born again. It doesn't speak simply of the regeneration of individuals, but it actually says nations are born again. Nations are regenerated. Nations experience the new birth. So that great hope we have of the conquest of the earth with the gospel and bringing in of nation after nation to faith in Christ began with the earth shaking at the death of Jesus. And if you wonder where that phrase comes from, go home and read Psalm 33, Psalm 37:11 to the end of that chapter, and Psalm 72 and Psalm 110 he shall have dominion nations will be reborn have faith to believe that my friends let that feed your hope let that inspire zeal in you and perseverance say i'm not going to quit i'm not going to be intimidated out of what god has called me to do in the midst of this wicked world God has called me to make the world's nations His disciples and I will not stop until I see that day or until my children see that day or my grandchildren see that day or my great-grandchildren see that day. I will live for the latter-day glory of the church. And it's my prayer, beloved, that the little things that we do every day for the glory of God, will move us one step closer to that latter glory and that we will not allow the wickedness in this world around us to slow us down or sidetrack us from declaring the truths of God's word, no matter the consequences to our puny little lives. John Wycliffe, if you remember, was not a part of the Protestant Reformation. He lived, actually, a couple of centuries earlier, but there hasn't been, there would not have been a Reformation without him. William Tyndale wasn't a part of the Great Reformation of England. He was a precursor. He was a grandfather of the Reformation, but there wouldn't have been a Reformation in England without him. These men persevered against all odds. And remember, beloved, those pre-reformers, one of them was burned at the stake, and the other, all the powers of England, tried to burn him at the stake. Oh, my friends, like these men and so many others, persevere. Whether this world at this time in history tries to burn us at the stake or place us in prison and throw away the key is irrelevant. We have a promise before God, beginning with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the gospel will increase and intensify until the entire loaf of bread, the world, is leavened with that gospel. And here we stand, and we are to do our part and persevere in getting this world one step closer to the latter days of the church, which began in Christ at His death